Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is A.P. Thompson, the creator of one of my favourite games of the year, Beglitched, and the recently released Swap Sword on iOS. Uh, and, and as I'm sure you've come to expect from the show, he is a wonderful, terrific, fascinating guest. Um, he also teaches uh, game design at uh, NYU and programming specifically, I think. Um, and yeah, it's it's honestly, it's such a treat. This is, I don't know, it's one of those things, when, when I started this show, you know, uh, I started it because it was something that I wanted to listen to, but I always sort of, I was always a little bit nervous that uh, the show would become kind of repetitive, I guess. And not because people are interesting, but because people's history with games would tend to be sort of so similar to the point of being redundant. Um, and I'm delighted to say that just that has not been the case at all. Um, everyone's experience of games has been totally different. And AP is a, is a wonderful uh, example of that. You know, his his kind of almost fearful relationship with games as a, as a kid uh, is, is unlike any any other guest that I've had on the show so far. And, and the story of how, how Kirby made him sort of break free of that is, is a lovely little thing. And my God... Um, like this is quite a long episode but you know if you're thinking oh i can't listen to the whole thing i would really encourage people just to skip to the last sort of 10 minutes of the show because ap sort of tells me about his his recent replay of ocarina of time and this kind of whole new thematic level he's discovered in the game which is unlike anything i've ever heard before and it's just totally blew my mind i think it's it's amazing and just adds another layer of of wonder to this already you know incredible game it's a honestly highly recommend it like listen to the whole thing it's wonderful but if you're not skip to the end and listen to those last 10 minutes it's it's amazing also uh someone messaged me on on twitter this week um saying that in asking actually not saying asking if i had like is there a page where there's a full list of all the episodes um because i think on the website the way i've formatted it you have to kind of keep going next i think it only shows you the latest sort of five um and this came up because on, on twitter i was tweeting about Jason Mora's latest game because he just released the trailer for the game that he's currently working on which he spoke about at length uh, when he was on the show episode 18 over a year ago and many people who'd started listening to the show since then had no idea that Jason Mora was on back at the start because you know it's hard to navigate through the website and I am working on that but in the meantime if you go to like iTunes or go to uh, overcast.fm and search for checkpoints you get a page which is basically just every single episode all on one page and I would really encourage people to go back and, and dig through the archives. There's some wonderful chats uh, in amongst the... Well, no, not in amongst the bad ones. They're all wonderful. <laughs> um, as is today's episode with AP, it's, it's a real treat. I think I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, if, you, if you do want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at Checkpoints Show or it's Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. And if you do go to either of those pages, please do, you know, give us a, a like on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter. Anything really to sort of raise the visibility of the show. You know, I want to try and broaden the audience as, as much as I can. So, you know, please do tell a friend, share it around. It's all massively appreciated, even like rating and view on iTunes. Although I'm still dubious as to what effect that actually has. 
um you know it just it shows that people are listening to the show and they, they like it which is often you know you don't often get that feedback um, and if you really like the show there's also a patreon page patreon.com forward slash checkpoints um and if you have the time and the inclination and uh, any any money you can throw towards the show is is massively uh, appreciated and helps me make the show better helps me do more amazing autosave episodes but also is just a really it just feels really good that someone's like you know i really like this show and here's like a couple of quid thanks for making it you know you don't have to subscribe forever just that that gesture in itself is uh, is a really lovely thing and thanks to everyone who's already thrown a few quid uh, into the the basket it's it's very much appreciated okay i'm gonna stop uh, chatting for a while i'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest but until then let's get on with the show It's usually a lot more fun to have people try to guess it. So. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to have to start this whole thing again, but that's fine. I might leave that bit in anyway. Um, so, AP, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks Thank so much you. for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Uh, okay. I'm AP, and I'm currently a game designer and a adjunct faculty at the NYU Game Center here in New York. Um I teach programming to undergrads at the moment, but next semester I'm going to be teaching them kind of a little bit of everything. Uh, so programming, audio, uh, production work, all that kind of stuff. And then also I've got an elective class next semester on procedural generation because that's kind of like an interesting topic to me and I wanted to teach a class on that. Um, in terms of the games that I've uh, made, most recently I have released Be Glitched, which came out, I guess, on October 10th, and it's on Steam, and it is a cyberpunk adventure game about hacking with a bizarre mashup of Match 3 and Minesweeper, basically. Oh, it's a wonderful game, and Cyberpunk is an especially good uh, description. Was that... Did you sort of take was, a day off as soon as you thought that up? No, no, no. That was Frank Lance. Frank Lance came up with that. Okay. Uh, Frank Lance is the director of the NYU Game Center, and he was extremely proud of himself for coming up with that. So, uh, oh no, it's I a good always, one. I always mention, I always mention that it's his, his uh, <laughs> responsibility for it. And how is how is Blaglitch uh, doing for you? I mean, I guess actually, you know, a better question than that is what what is your expectation when you're you're making games because i speak to like loads of, of devs that do you know relatively small projects and i often wonder that like what is what is what what do you expect to get from a game when it's released uh that's an interesting question because it's a little bit so it's sort of like a strange place for me in terms of development because i developed like plenty of games before beaglish came out um including a game with bennett called stair slide the blocks to ascend and Tony English Hawk's is... Pro Data is one of my favorites. Oh, nice. I think, you I think it's, that one. Yeah. I actually did, yeah, because it's it's just it's such a wonderful title, and then the game itself is uh, it's amazing. Yep. Really I, uh, it. I'm happy about that one. That one, is, uh, that one uh, confirms my existing belief that sometimes the most illegal games are uh, the, the best ones to make. Um, <laughs> so that, that game is, has plenty of uh, copyright infringement in the same way that Multiball does. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's like I made plenty of smaller games before and Beglitch was definitely my largest 
production that I worked on. Like, it is probably the longest game that I've made. Uh, so it's like, depending on how long it takes you to play through it, it can be uh, 8 to 16 hours. Um, it's definitely the most I've ever charged for a video game, for sure. Uh, 10 bucks, I guess. Yeah. And it's like one of the longest development times, too. I think it was probably in like development for roughly two years i mean none of, that wasn't full-time because i had other projects going on at the same time um and to me it felt like one of the first times that i was really finding that balance of uh this is something that could be like functional commercially and could also is like also satisfying my creative like desire yeah or like what i want to output creatively and so in terms of like expectations, like I kind of went into that with like, wow, this is like, this is a nice little perfect balance of I worked really hard on this. It's really big and I think it's really good. Uh, so which maybe inflated the expectations a little bit, yeah. uh, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it's always the way AP. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I can say that maybe critically uh, in terms of like people talking about it and people responding to it and people appreciating it, it is um, a very successful game. People seem to like it a lot. Uh, there's been relatively little, I guess, uh, negative responses to the game. There, there's been a, a bit. Like definitely, some folks are turned off by how brutally difficult it is. Uh, which, yeah, uh, I'll own that. It is not particularly friendly, despite looking like it is. Which is why. We've started describing it as being cute, but with fangs, um, <laughs> like the rabbit in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, basically. <laughs> uh, uh, but that said, it's also like of the games that I've made, despite it being the largest, the biggest, you know, the most complicated, uh, it's definitely not made the most money of the games that I've released commercially, <laughs> at least so far. Um, it's but, early yeah. days, yeah. It's, it's barely a month. Yep, yep, that's true. Um, so, and, and we'll see, because, you know, there are still sales, and it's yeah. still gearing up to be released on iOS as well, so there's still the potential for that. And do you, like, uh, this is just, this is like a, a kind of uh, a thread I haven't kind of mined before, this this whole idea of, because you've done so many kind of games that were kind of, you know, they're free to play, they're like really fun little Flash games and stuff. Is there, at uh, what point, I guess, in a development do you sort of think, okay, this could be a commercial game is it because of like the the scope of the basic premise that you could expand on it or is it just the theme that you think could be you know be broadened to a, a commercial scale yeah 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 it's sort of like when you're i mean for me it's definitely a factor of like the way that i end up developing these games is i do a lot of prototyping so mm -hmm. uh i Basically, I took a class that Bennett taught when I was an MFA at NYU uh, that was just make a new game every week. Um, and Tony Hawk's Predator was one week out of that 13-week uh, period. And that class definitely gives you an intuition for when you develop a prototype and if you were trying to turn it into a complete game, whether, like, you kind of get the idea of, like, oh, well, this is interesting and you know, I like it, but I know based on previous weeks that I can make something more interesting than this, or I can take this further, or this is not necessarily getting the kind of reaction that you would expect from something that could go commercial or something like that. Uh, prior to taking that class, though, and having any kind of that intuition, it was 
funnily enough, it was mostly like, like if I wanted to make something commercial, it's like, how do I even do that? What storefronts are even available to me as such a small creator? Uh, so when I was like an undergrad, it's basically it was the app store uh, was the thing. So my criteria for whether I could make a commercial game or not was, can I turn this into an iOS game? It was almost like the number one like question in my head. Like even if it, so it was like there were a few games that I released where I was like, this is completely free online. Uh, but now that I've made it into an iOS game, I'm going to charge like a dollar for it. Yeah. And that's like how I've decided to make it a commercial game. But you um, see that a lot. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. And it, it, that was also it, right? Is I saw plenty of other creators doing that. Uh, so, and it, it also made sense to me because it's like putting this game online for free doesn't really cost me anything. Like I'm going to have a website no matter what yeah. and pay the hosting fees. Putting a game on iOS does cost me the iOS developer's license, which is like, you know, not insignificant. Uh, so, like, I think I should probably try to make that money back if I can. Um, you wonder how yeah. different that landscape would be if uh, if Flash was available on mobile. Like, how, how that would have changed if people's sort of free Flash games could be easily played from a browser. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, well, now we've got this question of, like, are we ever going to get HTML5 games like running fast enough to be played in a browser on phones, which I maybe they're getting close. I haven't tried in a while, but it's uh, it can be kind of tough. Um, but yeah, I guess nowadays it's like judging whether a project that I'm working on should be commercial or not is sometimes, sometimes I'm looking at it in terms of like, what, what is my goal with this game? Does this, game meet the constraints of commercial what a commerciality I'm trying I, to find I, the right I, I'll allow it yeah <laughs> it, it, like for instance it's like uh, I can make a game like Tony Hawk's Pro Dater and I can say very easily this game no, it does not meet the constraints of commerciality at all it's like uh, the music is stolen uh, the name Tony Hawk is probably not something I could put on a commercial product like uh, the most of the uh, animated images in there I just found via Google search, like that kind of thing. And it's like, I think even if I did properly attribute them, it would not be something that I could end up selling. Um, but it's like also, I don't know, sometimes it comes down to like, if my goal for the game is like, I think this is something neat and I want people to pay attention to it and I want as many people to pay attention to it as possible, then like just based on my experience with iOS and uh, other places, it's like going from zero dollars to any dollars is a gigantic cognitive leap in terms of what people will play or yeah. touch. It's just huge, huge. It's just gigantic. Uh, it's like you can, if you're going to make your game commercial or premium and you're sort of thinking about like, oh, and it's on the app store and you're like, oh, one dollar, two dollars, three dollars, I don't know turns out actually there's very little difference between people's buying habits when you're that like low on the tier of what you're charging but that jump between zero and any is yeah just especially well, with that's... all the free-to-play games around now yeah exactly um so you... like for instance uh a game that the game that i made prior to be glitched with my collaborator on be glitched jenny jowshaw uh was stellar smooch which we ended up releasing for free on iOS. Yeah, it was it was a game that took probably about I want to say like less than thirty minutes to complete, and it's really just sort of like a poem. 
more than anything else. And we felt that like it's very strong and interesting and we would like people to play this. But if we charge $1, very few people are going to play it. And the people who do are going to flood our reviews with being annoyed that a 20-minute game costs them a dollar. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know, a strategic decision in that sense. We also had other games we were working on, so we were like, let's make this a non-commercial one, then let's come back and try to make a bigger one commercial. Do you ever think, or, like, I'm, it's tricky one, like, do you, do you ever think about it from the other side? Like, you know, how can I make a game that makes money? Or do you think that's just you're on a hide into nothing if you try that method? Uh, ironically, actually, well, I guess this is not ironically, but I have thought about that before in terms of like when developing a game, I thought about how can how can I try to make this into something that would like actually make a bunch of money. And as it turns out, the, the one time that we really approached it from that uh, viewpoint was the time we made money. Um <laughs> So that was Stair, Slide the Blocks to Ascend. It was uh, another game that came out of this prototyping class. And it's an extremely simple, like, uh, score-chasing arcade game. Um, and it's, it's like, fun. I like it. I think it's good. Uh, it benefits a lot from Bennett's rotoscoped animation. Uh, Bennett did that with me. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, we both kind of agree that it's, like, as far as like a score chasing arcade style game on iOS, this is not that sticky, right? It's like other games out there kind of pursue this format a little bit better and do a better job of it. And from the get go, we were, we're sort of approaching this and like, well, we know that this game is solid, but not like, you know, golden. So how do we like design it in a way that will kind of maximize its effect in terms of like, selling it on the app store so part of that is like that's where the aesthetic for it came from a little bit is this idea of like let's make a rotoscope silhouette because apple loves that stuff <laughs> <laughs> commercials with rotoscope silhouettes uh let's choose this color scheme to be very very ios color scheme like that kind of thing um so that game was very much approached from a commercial mindset and then that game made a bunch of money um well, there you go. That's, that's everything yep, that's... every aspiring developer needs to know. Yeah. <laughs> go go for the money. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so I, well, I'm sure well, that the like, <laughs> perhaps you're 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 using maybe different parts of of your brain to do it, but it's still, I think that kind of uh, creation it's still a creative um, endeavor. I don't think it's like without merit. I don't think it's like a cold thing. But I do think that it's. I don't know, like almost more of a more of a puzzle, more of a like lateral thinking exercise yep. than a creative exercise. You're like, okay, well, what can I do to make these these things make money for me? Yep, it goes a little bit against my instincts most of the time because uh, I, I think this is maybe a trait I inherited from Bennett a little bit. But I really like messing with the players in unexpected ways, uh, and I think the two of us find that kind of thing to be delightful when it happens to us. It's like, oh, the game just made like a really big joke at our expense. Um, <laughs> and we love and we want like we love that and we want to put it in our games. But it is the type of thing that at least in the modern, uh, I guess, like the modern game consumer is like not a gigantic fan of. No, generally not, especially yeah. when there's there's money involved. Yep. <laughs> Although that would be amazing if there was some sort of free to play game 
and you buy a bunch of gems like these gems have no function whatsoever you're you're a fool <laughs> but they yeah. probably wouldn't they probably get a lot of one star reviews for that yeah um, well let's go back ap um if you can remember what was your very first experience of a video game uh i do actually remember uh there were a couple very early experiences and because this was early in my life i'm not entirely sure what order they came in uh so that's going to be a thing and i should probably preface this by saying that uh just to get everyone's shock out of the way i was born in 1989 okay um 27 years old right now so quite a few of the things i'm going to talk about is like early or first experiences are going to be going to make uh the older generation groan a bit or you know uh, I'm, I'm groaning already ap yeah. yeah sorry about that no it's fine uh i mean well one of the so one of the earliest memories i can have of a video game existing was in the dentist's office uh the dentist had an atari 2600 and it had basketball on it so there we go that's not a bad one um but the actual experience of playing video games my earliest thoughts were when my brother for his birthday, got a original Game Boy, which is the first game console that anyone in our family had ever owned. Um, and he had two games for it. One was Super Mario Land, uh, and the other one was Home Alone, like the Game Boy adaptation of that. Okay. And I re remember playing Super Mario Land, or watching my brother play it, actually, for the most part, and uh, sort of getting it. And I remember the Home Alone game being absolutely incomprehensible to me <laughs> uh, to this day i can't remember what it was you did in that game it's like i it seems like the type of thing where it'd be like nowadays if you were to design a home alone game you're like oh yeah you've got this like big house and you lay all these traps everywhere yeah, you but i do like sure uh, it was like uh, uh what, yeah, what are those games like, called the desktop uh tower, tower defense. defense tower defense games do yeah. a little bit of a tower defense style thing you know? be a lot of fun uh or you could potentially make it fun i guess is what i'm saying yeah, but yeah i don't yeah. think the game boy game was that it was probably it was a prob 2d platformer of some kind yeah something to that effect but either way um so that was my first experience seeing a game i guess was when my brother got a game boy and as a you know a younger sibling i immediately was like well i want one too uh so that it took, I think, maybe a year or two before, on my birthday, I also got a Game Boy. Um, but I had a very weird relationship with games and violence at that age. I think it okay. was my, six, my sixth birthday when I got my Game Boy. And by then I had had an opportunity to play my brother's game, Game Boy, enough to realize that I think video games are very cool and I really like them, but I am terrified of like in-game violence is when I'm like five or six. I'm like just totally terrified of it. Like I can't deal with games that have enemies in them, that the, it's like there's this violent opposition to the player. Uh, and this actually sticks around with me for a while, and I don't know at what age I like finally kind of became desensitized to it and started doing it. But the result of this is that when I got my own Game Boy for my sixth birthday, I asked explicitly like, please only sports games. I can't yeah. deal with violence. Or I can't deal with like, sort of, you know, uh, I probably didn't express it this way when I yeah, was Yeah, I was going to say, that's that, a very yeah. eloquent six-year-old. <laughs> no, yeah, it was definitely what was in my head, though. It was because yeah. it was like, brother had Kirby's Dreamland, and I would play Kirby's Dreamland over and over 
until the first enemy showed up. And then I'd be like, okay, time to reset the game. Was that just because you were scared of like getting hit or something? Was it like a, like a, I, almost like being scared so. of like monsters in the cupboard or something? Maybe, yeah, something like that. I mean, uh, it was the thing where it was like, I knew one person who would play Super Mario Land and she would, whenever she wanted Mario to jump farther, she would tilt the Game Boy on its side, right? Oh, yeah, classic. Sort of like this idea of like this very physical, uh, you know, it's we're kind of like blurring the lines between what's digital and what's physical because we're not familiar with these devices yet. And I think that was true for me, too, this sort of like maybe just fundamental dread that if Kirby came to harm, that harm would also come to me. Like, or like that would, that would transfer to me. And if it was you die like, in the Matrix, you die in real life, basically. Yeah, there was like, I had a <laughs> sense of that as a child, or despite it being untrue, at least for the Game Boy, right? But it's something that I was definitely felt in my gut. And so I asked for only sports games. Uh, so for a while on my Game Boy, I think I had Nintendo's baseball uh, game for the Game Boy. I had there. I had Tech Tech Bowl, the American football game. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a hockey game of some kind. And the funny thing about this is that, like, I asked for only sports games, and I actually didn't like sports games. That much. <laughs> it turns out these games weren't super great. So those were the first games I owned, but I was not particularly enamored with them. And the first game that I got that I was enamored with was actually. A Kirby game, but this time it was because uh, Kirby was really big, so they made like a Kirby version of almost every game out there course, for a yeah. while. Uh, so it was Kirby's Block Ball, which was basically a Kirby version of Breakout. And it was uh, that was the first game I remember actually getting into and playing, and I think I got that for my seventh birthday. Um, and I had no idea what that game was when I got it. That's the funny thing. You must have been filled uh, with dread, though, seeing Kirby on the cover. You're like, this is it. I'm going to have to well, face my no demons. Problem. I had no problem with Kirby. I had problems with Kirby coming to harm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's like, I think it's like my parents were aware that I liked Kirby. I thought Kirby was cute, uh, but they didn't maybe didn't quite understand that when I was playing Kirby on my brother's Game Boy, I was not actually playing Kirby. I was just like watching Kirby run around and then an enemy shows up and I leave the level or something. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Kirby's Black Ball was a breakout clone, but it had a lot of Kirby twists to it. So, like, Kirby can gain different powers, so then you use the B button to, like, have him use the power, and he, you know, changes the way the ball yeah. moves and affects it. Affects I think there was, like, a, there was a really good Kirby pinball game. I don't know if it was maybe on the Super Nintendo, and it's probably, I imagine, some sort of derivative of that, but I remember that being brilliant. Yeah, I got that one for the Game Boy eventually. I think years later I got the Kirby Pinball game. Um, but I remember the the Breakout one was... I loved it because it was like... Because Kirby was just a ball and he couldn't be hurt by enemies. But all he could be hurt by was the spikes. And for some reason, as an existential threat, spikes were not as scary to me <laughs> as enemies. Um, so, I mean, that was basically... That was like my kind of the first game that I really kind of immersed myself in as a child uh, was that one. That's amazing. I mean, as much as, you know, you say people in uh, older generations will groan and and they absolutely will because I did. um, I always find it really interesting because like you would essentially have been born into a world 
with games. I mean, I'm not a huge. I mean, I'm I'm like uh, I'm nine years older than you, so it's not a huge difference. But for me, I remember when I first sort of experienced games. It was like it was like a new thing had just emerged from the world. Yep. You know, there was no such thing as games, and then there were games. But growing up with kind of them being ever present, I think is I don't know. It's it's a subtle kind of difference, but it, it it's something that you kind of mm. carry with you that you you're aware that they're always there. It's not like a, a monolith. It is interesting, though, that I also had the sense of them, like, emerging. And I think part of that was that my uh, parents didn't really play games at all. So when until my brother got his Game Boy, there were no games in the household okay. uh, whatsoever. And, uh, I mean, my parents had played a few games, like, when they were, you know, younger and that kind of thing, but never really got into them. Um, and... So it was kind of like I would see a I remember distinctly before my brother even got a Game Boy, I saw like a Sega Genesis at a Toys R Us and it was like the box was for the controller and I saw how cheap it was. And I was like, oh, we need to get this because look, then we can play <laughs> these games. I had to, someone had to inform me that, no, you don't just buy a controller. You also need other things to be able to play games. Um, but uh, it was like. I think actually one of the primary reasons that my brother got a Game Boy uh, was because my family took a lot of long car trips. Okay. And my parents were like, ooh, wow, this is <laughs> this is the chance. This is the chance to get the kids to be quiet in the car for like a period of time. Um, so we ended up being, or at least when I was growing up, actually, most of my memories of playing games were on handheld devices. Uh, huge. And so did you, like, you know, going forward, did you then get, like, different versions of the Game Boy, the Game Boy Color, or did you did you eventually sort of graduate onto a, an actual home console? We did have a home console. Um, okay, so, I mean, uh, to answer your first question, yes. Uh, every time a new Game Boy console came out or a new handheld console came out, it would it'd be, like, the top of my list or it'd be the thing I was most interested in getting in the world of games. Uh, um. We did have home consoles. Uh, the first home console we got, don't know which year this would have been, uh, maybe around when I was like eight, or I want to say seven, because it was definitely a little bit before the Nintendo 64. Um, but we got a Sega Genesis. It was, again, my brother's. And uh, again, like almost every game we had on that was a kind of like involved violent conflict and I was still not I was still hung up on that to a certain extent so it's like I would watch my brother play Sonic the Hedgehog and I would watch my um neighbor play Sonic the Hedgehog and eventually I would play a little bit of Sonic the Hedgehog too but I would try to avoid every enemy and then when I got to Dr. Robotnik I'd be like can't avoid this turn off the game (laughs) (laughs) so that's kind of heartbreaking uh, yeah, I mean, it's a thing that eventually I kind of, uh, obviously I eventually got over that a little bit. Uh, just this, like, fundamental anxiety about these, like, these creatures behind the screen that wish to do you harm. Um, also, I'm sure playing Sonic with the the intention of not killing or interacting with any enemy makes it much more difficult as a game. Yeah. Because as well, you jump, you're hitting people. So you have to, that's some, some serious uh, speedrunning kind of technique. That's true, yeah. Although, at least in the first level of Sonic, or the first world anyways, which is about all you can really play without having to fight Dr. Robotnik, uh, 
it, they're kind of designed to be like, look, you can go fast and not have to, yeah. and like run past everything. It's like only in the later levels does Sonic start really playing with the idea of, oh, you want to go fast, but we're going to put a thing in your way that prevents you from going fast. Um, so yeah, that was, yeah, kind of, so it was like for the, for the Genesis, I feel like I played a few games for that. But not that many. And then when uh, when I was eight years old, we got a Nintendo 64, which um, I guess it's like when we got it, we got Mario 64 because, of course, that was like the yeah, big game. Everyone got that. Uh, and we also got Star Fox. And I remember at the time that it's like I'd seen commercials for Star Fox on TV and had no idea what the game was um, whatsoever. It's like the commercials made it completely unclear what it was. Uh, so when we finally got the thing up and running and playing, um, I actually ended up playing a lot more Star Fox than I did uh, Mario 64. And I think part of it was that I felt somewhat safer in Star Fox. It's like you're never really... You're inside a ship. Like, you find you're inside a ship. <laughs> you're inside a ship. You're not really colliding with your opponents unless you... like. You can dodge them if they get too close and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But, like, yeah, you're sort of, like, sanctioned off a little bit from, like, these other creatures that wish to do you harm. And it's something that I found, a, like, a little, a nice little bridge in terms of, like, dealing with the fact that most of these games were about conflict. So it's like, while all my friends and family just wanted to play Mario 64 all the time, I was like, but the very first thing you do in Mario 64 is you got to fight this big bomb guy, this big bomb bomb. And he scared me a lot. His mustache was huge. He was gigantic. <laughs> he went to. He wanted to do Mario harm. So I played Star Fox instead. So that was like first big console game that I was that I actually got into. And it's, and it's my an friends amazing game, though. It is an amazing game. Like it's it's much maligned. I think Star Fox sixty four is so good. Yeah, and I the love very it. first uh, very first Rumble game like ever, as far as I know. Yep. Still, and I still love it a lot today. I just remember at the time that my friends would hate it when it was like we would be playing Mario 64 and then it's like because we had to ration time on the console and eventually it would come up with my turn my turn I'd be like all right now we're playing Star Fox and everyone would groan because that meant we had to turn the console off and switch a cartridge out which nobody liked <laughs> and <laughs> did you did you uh, like develop a did you like grow a kind of group of friends around games that you had this kind of gang of pals who played games together uh well for the most part it was just who lived near me yeah. Um, which, because I, so I grew up in the suburbs of DC, and DC's uh, public transportation system is a little bit odd in that it seems to, at least when I was growing up, it seemed to only serve uh, business districts. It's like a city that's zoned very in a SimCity kind of way, right? Okay. It's like over here's the residential district, and no business shall pass this line, and over here's the business district. And if you don't have something connecting the two, you can't really walk between the two. Uh, and it's like the subway, for the most part, like definitely didn't really go um, between areas of my life, at least. It's like there was no stop near my house. So my friend group was just who lived in my neighborhood. Yeah. It was just impossible for it to be anyone else. But like, I mean, I suppose that this is another thing that's kind of a generational thing, maybe, um, is... Like when I was growing up, games were um, extraordinarily like niche. Like I would, 
I would sometimes even hide the fact that I was really into games from people because I'd be a bit embarrassed in the same way you'd maybe hide a D&D manual or something. Obviously, that's very different now. But I'm, I'm curious, like, when you were growing up, did you feel like it was uh, like a niche nerdy thing or was it just broadly everybody plays games? It's fine. So it's interesting that you asked that question because there is a, a like a very clear cut line in time that I can point at where it went from games feel niche and only and it's like I have to hide the fact that I talk about them or it feels embarrassing to talk about them like in school or something. Yeah. So these are not the people I'm playing games with because it's like I go to school elsewhere from my neighborhood. So I'm not going to school with my neighborhood kids yeah. or my neighborhood friends. Um, and then there's a very distinct line in which like everyone in my at my age group realized that actually everyone played games. Let's see if you can guess what that line is. Well, I mean, um, I'm pretty sure it was Pokemon. Yeah, it was Pokemon. Of course it was Pokemon. Yep. What a wonderful Pokemon. Game. Red and blue came out, and suddenly, suddenly, everyone realized that everyone else owned a Game Boy and was playing this game. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, yeah. That and that was, became uh, the currency of the schoolyard then, I imagine. Definitely, yeah. It was, uh, it was a huge thing in terms of, like, kids actually talking about games and playing them together. I think it was, like, uh, prior to that, I'd had a few interactions where it was, like, I... Well, I guess Pokemon came out a little bit after Final Fantasy VII, and those were two, my like two big introductions to the JRPG genre, yeah. or the RPG genre even in general. Um, which I loved, by the way, because like the whole turn-based nature of the combat, like really, really soothed my whole conflict anxiety. Uh, so I loved both of those games, uh, but FF Seven was the one I played first, and. Uh, before Pokemon came out, it's like I remember once hearing another kid at my school talking about FF7, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And then uh, we like ended up spending the entire playground hour or what recess, I guess, talking about it. Um, oh no, it's and, wonderful, and I love the idea yeah. that it kind of soothed your kind of anxiety of enemies because if you do nothing, then the enemies don't move. It's fine. But. Which is not actually true in FF7. It's like it was set up in a way that if you did nothing, then the enemies will actually take right, their okay, turns. Okay. But uh, it's maybe a little bit easier to fool yourself into believing that's not the case. Um, <laughs> uh, and so were you were you an avid fan of Pokemon? Did you uh, get as into it as everybody did? Oh, yeah, I got into it in a big way. Uh, I just, uh, I mean, I, ne- I guess I never caught them all. Um so maybe I didn't get into it as in as big of a way as other folks, but it was like I tried to uh, get everyone. I got everyone on my team like up to 100. I tried to through various trades with other people get like a team that was like incredibly powerful or it featured every single starter Pokemon or that kind of thing, which you couldn't do on your own. Yeah. Um, and I remember it's like I I played through it so many times uh, and I played through uh, I got like the yellow version, which was basically red and blue. But like now they added a few things and now a Pikachu follows you everywhere. And I played all the way through that. And it was yeah, I think I got maybe I got a little bit tired of the whole formula around when I was finishing gold and silver. But before that, it was just like that was is one of the best things out there. Has it kind of, um, does it sort of stick with you? Like, I mean, as we talk now, there's new versions of Pokemon coming out any day now, I think. 
Are you, are you actually, still excited? Or? It's funny that you mention it because that's uh, what I kind of spent my weekend doing a little bit. Uh, it was there was a period where I was like not extremely excited about Pokemon. So it's like I and I, I think there was actually a period for a lot of people my age because we were really we were the kids who were the target demographic for Pokemon when the first ones came to the U.S. Uh, we were like around fourth grade, fifth grade when Pokemon Red and Blue came to the U.S. and that was the exact age group they were targeting. We were the same age as all the characters in the TV show. Um, and then Gold and Silver came out, like, I guess a couple years later. And we enjoyed it and that kind of thing. But then the next generation, Ruby and Sapphire, came out. And I felt like maybe it was like at that point we were all teens uh, and not as into this. And for a while it was funny. You could People would talk about like, oh, Pokemon, remember that fad? Like, oh, that was really big. It's like, where the heck did that ever go? And uh, because I was a camp counselor for most of my teens uh, in the summer. What does that mean? Like the very, a camp counselor? We don't really have camps in the UK. Ah, uh, so I mean, it was my summer job was I was basically, you have summer camps and yeah. counselors are like kind of the, the people in charge of the kids uh but you would have still been a kid though surely when i was a teenager oh okay right so like smaller yeah. kids then not like other yeah, teenagers. yeah yeah okay. smaller kids so it was, okay. i mean when i was a young when i was a younger teenager i was not a full-fledged camp counselor yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like initially you have to be a counselor in training which is like half camper half counselor and then you have to be like a, a staff assistant which is sort of like counselor intern almost Okay. And then you can become a full-fledged counselor. So it's like that's the path that uh, I went down. So you and... could see all the kids were still clearly into Pokemon. Yeah, definitely. So whenever anyone brought up, like, whatever happened to Pokemon, that goofy fad, remember that, I'd be like, go check out any fourth-grade classroom right now, and you'll see that <laughs> it didn't. Pokemon did not go anywhere. You went somewhere. Pokemon has stayed where it was. Like, it is still just as big. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, I think all the versions that came out when I was college stage uh i was just did, had no time for uh i mean i didn't have I, when i was in college i didn't have time for almost any game yeah. at all um but definitely not the pokemon games which are gigantic time sinks and it was like only kind of like when i emerged out of school uh which is when the last two generations of pokemon happened that it's like it was a combination of like hey you have time to play pokemon now also a lot of the things that made Pokemon extremely time-consuming, they've kind of, like, iterated on and made a lot smoother. So now the games are, like, more pleasurable for someone who is uh, doesn't have as much time on their hands. Yeah. I picked it up again and was like, oh, hey, this is kind of fun. It's still got some charm, and it's definitely made it better than it used to be. Um, so to answer that question in a very long-winded way, yes, I'm playing the most recent iteration of Pokemon. Um how about Pokemon Go? Did that did that strike a chord with you? How did what go? Pokemon Go. Did that strike a chord with you? My phone's old. Wasn't able to open it. Oh, really? Yeah, I completely miss, uh, missed out on that entire thing. I didn't enjoy uh, it at all. I didn't. It's Because it's, it's not really Pokemon. It's, it's just a Pokemon-skinned yeah. version of uh, whatever that Google I game would... is called. I would believe it, but I at the same time, it's also hearing stories about people who kind of like connected with strangers over it made me be like, dang oh, it, yeah. I wish my phone could open this darn app. I wish <laughs> that would happen. 
Oh no! Like it's one of those games. Like, um, uh, like Eve is another example where I love hearing stories about it, but I've no time yeah. to really play Dwarf, it. Dwarf, Dwarf Fortress. Yeah, exactly. Dwarf one. Fortress, yeah. perfect example. Um, so, yeah. So as you got older, then were you always kind of? Did, did games ever leave you? Did you ever move away from games at a certain point and think, oh, okay, that's forget about that now. That was just something I was into as a kid. Time for some grown-up stuff. Uh, I mean, so maybe, so undergrad was maybe a little bit like that, uh, when I went to college. Um, but it was not because I felt like, oh, games are for kids, time for grown up stuff. It was because when I got to college, I found myself with so little free time. What did you do in uh, college? So I, I studied CS, uh, as an undergrad at MIT. And oh, fancy. <laughs> that sounded really was... patronizing. I didn't mean that sounded patronizing. Eh, it was a lot. It, it was a lot of work in general. I'm um, certain that it was, and it was definitely this feeling. It was also around the time because this is I went to college my in two thousand and eight. So this is kind of when like our modern notion of indie games are just starting yeah, to form. Totally. And at the time, like AAA games were like really heavily like laying on the like playtime almost uh like the hours and that kind of stuff so it's like i made various attempts when i had free time like during uh breaks or other times to like get into these games but they'd be so big and they'd be so long that by the time that i was like anywhere invested in them it's back to school time and uh no time to like actually play them during the school year and, and did, but did you go to like did you study computer science with a, a mind to to make games like did that was that something that you've been thinking about that was actually that was definitely a big part of why I was studying computer science. Um, I mean, basically, I went there and I was like not sure what my major would be. It's one of those schools where you go in and you do your freshman requirements and then you choose your major later. Um, so I was like, I I like computer science a lot, and if I were to do computer science, I'd be into games. But I also kind of like economics. This is really interesting. And uh, I think second semester freshman year, I took both the introductory courses that were offered and decided that, yep, I'm going to computer science. That is, <laughs> this is where I belong. Probably more of a function of how bad the intro economics course was, actually. <laughs> um, it's just like, I was like, wow, actually, you know what? My high school course on e economics was more nuanced and like, you know, uh, worldly yeah this is maybe the word i would say than this so it's like if i'm gonna study economics i don't think i want to do it here but you know that was 2008 though so maybe a lot of the economics professors were being set aside by uh, big banks trying to figure out what they're what on earth they were going to do yeah a part of it was also it was an intro course so it was very much like here you need to know the 101 yeah and we're gonna give you a very mathematical model of the 101 and like I knew, having studied more nuanced variations on this in high school, that it's like, well, but these mathematical models are, like, making these assumptions that are just fundamentally, like, flawed. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, it's, you can't, it, 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 so I, I was very turned off by the 101 course, because, I mean, probably if I'd gone further down the path of that, I would find the nuance that I was looking for. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, you shouldn't, shouldn't judge a book by its cover, shouldn't judge a major by its 101 course, but, uh. <laughs> at the same time, the the CS 101 course was not that. It was look at all the things that are possible with this world of computers. And I was like, hey, 
that's great. I like that. I already liked computers. Now I still like them. And exactly. I'm going to continue studying them. You know. So, but, but, I, what was like the what was the impression of the the university to you wanting to pursue games? Like, I imagine a computer science course at MIT uh, doesn't have a huge amount about you know how to make a quake level or something. That's a bad example. But you know what I mean. Like, was it? Yeah. Had had you kind of stated to professors and things that this is you wanted to, you know, learn how to make games, and how did they kind of perceive that? Uh, well, I guess I should probably mention that when I got to MIT, uh, there was a research lab there called the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab. Oh, cool! So this is a this is a research lab that uh, basically makes games for research purposes, or it was at the time, and it was funded by Singapore and had this summer program where a lot of Singaporean students would be brought over uh, and effectively make a research game during the summer. And I actually started working for that lab the moment I got to MIT. Uh, and did you know enough, that was so, coming? Was that kind of part of the reason you wanted to, to do that? Uh, I mean, I knew that prior to going to MIT, I knew that I the thing that I loved to do the most with computers and computer programming was making games. Um, okay. So that was like, part of it was that basically during my freshman week, they had a tour of the various labs that you could look at and work at as an undergrad. This is a big part of the culture there is that if you're an undergrad, you do research too. Um, so that was like kind of almost this sort of base assumption there that it's like you'd be doing your classes and then you'd be working with some sort of lab at some point. I mean, you didn't have to, but yeah. almost everyone did. Uh, so they had a tour, they had tours scheduled for all the different labs and what was scheduled in the exact same sl time slot uh, was the computer science and artificial intelligence lab, which is the big gigantic CS focused lab that houses a bunch of sub labs as well uh at mit was scheduled simultaneously with the game lab and i was like "Ooh, looks like i have to make a decision about which one i'm going to go visit and decided to go visit the game lab and at the end of the tour i was like well this place is super duper cool how do i get a job here um and it's kind of that's that's where i went from there uh so i worked with them basically every single semester and also most of the summers that I was uh, an undergrad there. And was it everything you, you had hoped or expected? Um, I mean, well, the thing is, is I worked on so many different projects there that it was, uh, it, it, there were ups and downs, I guess. There were some projects that I definitely liked more than other projects. Uh, there was also this feeling of, I guess this is the part of what led me towards uh, more of a game design focused place like NYU is that a lot of what was going on there was like they were making games for the purposes of research because that was like I got this feeling that MIT wanted their want like thought games for their own sake were like frivolous and unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were going to be doing something with games, it needed to serve some broader purpose. Uh, that's the impression I got. Uh, just sort of like ambiently felt like it was uh, in the air. And so that meant that it's like a lot of projects that could have potentially been really interesting design wise were constrained in a certain way around research. So it's like there were some, it's like this one like has to be like educational in this very specific way, or this one has to use this like part 
piece of AI technology in a very specific way or that kind of thing. It, it, it felt a little bit less like we want to make interesting works of uh, culture or art yeah. or, you know, it's, it's things kind of what that we were talking like, about earlier with the kind of the, you know, where, where you, you begin the process of making the game. Do you come at it from a creative artistic standpoint or do you come at it from more of a, a structural and, you know, with, with an end goal in mind, be that teaching someone something or making money, as we said earlier. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And every single one of the projects there, I think had one of those end goals in mind ultimately. Um, and I think some of my favorite projects that I worked on while I was there had a more tenuous or more of a liberal arts end goal at the end yeah. of them. Uh, because they they were just more open in the first place. It's sort of like we're we're researching with quotation marks around it, but we're like kind of more exploring is kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Um. So that was like some of my favorite games that I worked on there involved that. Um. And was there like a, a specific game that you played like probably earlier, like before you went to university, that made you? that kind of put you on that path where you're like, I want to make these games, you know, something that took them beyond just, this is a fun thing to do to like, Oh, this is something I really want to be involved in. Yeah, actually there were quite a few. Um, and this is, so I guess it's like around 2007, 2008, there were quite a few games that if they didn't come out around then, they at least became popularized around then yeah. that, uh, were made by small teams of creators that were, like inspired me in the sense that it's like I look at the game and I say like, oh wow, like I like this game a lot. I like this game as much as like a lot of the games I played when I was a kid. I think this is like really good. And it was made by one person or two people or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's like pretty classic one is Cave Story. I think I discovered that around like 2006 or 2007 and got really into that. Um, and it was also around 2007 that I played Knit and Knit Stories. And both of those, and I mean, those two were same creator, but it was like... I'm not familiar with those at all. Knit or Knit Stories? Yeah. That's spelled K-N-Y-T-T. -T. No, I've never never heard of them. That's, that's a blank spot on my video game history. I mean, I guess Knit was the first one, and then Knit Stories was a follow-up that prominently featured a level editor so a big part of it was that you could download other people's like kind of creations um and what was the, the actually, game it was a 2d exploratory platformer and you might you might call it like a metroidvania except i it actually featured very little conflict actually almost i think it's there was no there were no weapons in the game and there was no way to harm enemies it's like enemies could like harm you and you'd have to restart at a checkpoint but for the most part it was like all about getting around them and then exploring this like really big space and then getting different items that help you explore a little bit easier like that kind of thing yeah um so that was the that was those games for the most part there was also a game that came out around uh 2007 but that was called uh, Noitu Love 2. Okay. Says This is actually a spoiler. That's evolution spelled backwards uh, and split into two words. And it was a sequel to, I guess this guy is, uh, I'm going to completely mangle the pronunciation of his name. I want to say Joachim Sandberg. He's uh, currently working on the Iconoclasts. It's his like, current project, but... Uh, 
this game came out around 2007 or 2008. I can't remember which. And it was like one of the most polished games that I have ever seen come out of like one person's development. Yeah. And I remember, I remember he made it in Multimedia Fusion 2. It's like one of these uh, early middleware game maker style engines. And I remember playing that and being just blown away by like how high quality it was um, and how interesting it was. And sort of just like, yeah, I guess prior to that, um, I wanted to make games, but like a lot of people said, oh, if you want to make games, that means you need to go like work for a company. Yeah. uh, Like one of these really large companies and you need to, it's like the thing that people would often tell me is, oh, you'll need to be like a tester for several years and you'll hate it and you'll enjoy yeah. it and it won't be any fun and you should you should consider a career in finance instead. And you hear this a lot of the time. Um, uh, but it's seeing these smaller independent games, I was like, oh, these were made by very few people and they're really cool. And I kind of want to do a little bit of that of myself. So that was around when I started... I guess, more seriously thinking about uh, developing my own games. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to come back to that, but I want to branch off for a second and do some uh, relatively quick-fire questions. Um, sure. So, AP, um, if you had to play a game with death for your own immortal soul, uh, what game are you best at? Super Hexagon. Super Hexagon. Yep. That was, really, there was, there was really... no hesitation there at all. I'm very good at Super Hexagon. Uh, it's uh, for a little bit of time. I was the number two person on the leaderboard. Uh, that is um, some dedication. Yeah, I was like. Do you know who for... was number one? So I know who was number three. Number three was Terry Kavanaugh. Okay, time, okay. So it's so a creator of the game. Yeah. But number one was uh, some Game Center user named Amana Ichu. <laughs> I always remember because it's like I was always trying to surpass this person's score and at one point I was on route to doing it and there was an earthquake in Boston where I was which caused me to lose and I was like <laughs> a literal act of God yeah actual act of God preventing me from getting the top spot here <laughs> and yeah so uh, yeah I guess it's like um why do you think you were so good at it? I was good at it because, uh, well, I guess getting into like uh, this sort of ties into before. It's like when I got to undergrad in college and it's like suddenly I don't have time to play these games that require these like immense, uh, immense hours to be put into them. Yeah. It was around uh, later in college when I figured out that mobile games were really interesting and also didn't need that time. Uh, that was required of all these big AAA games. So uh, I would latch on to a variety of mobile games and play them for a long period of time. And when Super Hexagon came out, that was kind of like my go-to like anxiety reducer, which is strange. That is absolutely a insane. People... I can't think of a game that, that gives me more anxiety than Super Hexagon. That's what I a lot of people say. I genuinely find it so stressful. Say. It's so fast. I, yeah. I panic. Yeah, it's uh, it, and I don't completely understand it either. There's definitely something there, though. You can probably like talk about flow theory or something like that. But once you really like get into the game and you get into the zone with it, like it, it becomes this. It 
akin to meditation almost uh, in terms of like, because what you, the way you get there is you put your mind in this state where it's like you're half distracted, but also like razor sharp focused. It's like, that's when you're starting to play at peak performance. Uh, it's the moment you start like 100% focusing on the game. You're not going to do particularly well. You choke. It's like a, any baseball pitcher who thinks about the actual physical mechanics of pitching the baseball is not going to be able to throw the baseball properly. Um, and it's similar with Super Hexagon. Is you, you basically, to get good at that game, you have to put your mind into this state of, like, just kind of pure animalistic reaction that when your anxiety stems from overthinking things from, like, a rational place, uh, it can actually reduce it quite a bit. That is that is super interesting, um, and it's weird. Like I, I it, this is going to sound like such a, a a boast, but it's not meant to be like that. But like I'm generally very very good at Twitch games, like and especially games where you get into a a kind of a, a flow state. But I find I can only do that really well when I when there's like a predictable, almost like perfect way to do it. It's the randomness of Super Hexagon that throws me and makes me panic. Yep. Because I can't. Predict. I mean, the thing, the funny thing about it is not actually that random. Uh, like, uh, you'll Maybe discover it's number like two every in the world, single, but every single level has like the, you're basically just dealing with patterns. So it's fundamentally what pattern am I at? Where am I in relation to the pattern? So it's like now here's just like a series of quick timed presses that I've kind of memorized almost that will get me through it. Yeah, it's like like the hardest part in that game is when you get to sort of the final highest difficulty level it introduces a pattern that moves so quickly that you it just feels like it's impossible to go past then you realize that oh wait a minute it's just right right left 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 and it's like in that rhythm too and then it's like you're past it maybe that's the thing i'm missing because that's the thing i always felt uncomfortable with is the 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 controls never felt precise enough for me and i'm sure they are but i just never i never tuned into the game enough to know what they were like if it was yeah. like segmented on like a like Tempest, you know, where you're kind of on rails at specific points, I think I'd find it a lot more relaxing. But the fact that I'm, yep. I'm always like, oh, have I just gone a bit over? I can't tell. I'm dead. And yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, part of it's just figuring out that precise timing for each of the patterns. Yeah. Uh, it, it then throws curveballs at you in like the end of the game, where it's like that pattern that was so difficult to get past right, right, left, left, left. Oh, wait, we've introduced a second one that looks almost identical, but you actually need to go right, 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 right. And it's like, that's your next tier, is figuring out how to very quickly with your eyes discern which one you're looking at. Yeah. Maybe I need to play it more because it sounds like something, like I've I've had that with um, Thumper recently. Thumper's one of my favorite games of the year. It's amazing. And I did have that kind of sense of, oh, this is a bit too random, I'm getting freaked out. But after a while, you do like, okay, no, I know this. I recognize those music cues. I can do this. Yep. And it works. Yep. Um, okay, so um, has there ever been a game that you've had to kind of uninstall and walk away from because it was consuming your life? Uh, yeah, I would say that um, uh, Final Fantasy Eleven. so this is their first uh, online one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that one came out when I was 14 years old uh, and was the first MMORPG I'd ever played, first MMO I'd ever played, and it definitely consumed my life way too much. Like, 
it came out around the end of eighth grade for me. So it's like suddenly I have this entire summer where it's like, what are you going to do with your time? Well, I'm really into this game. Guess I'll play this. And it's (laughs) like I would play it almost every waking moment. And I would like, because it was summer, I didn't have a bedtime or anything. I would, my sleep schedule just went completely into Japanese time. And it's like, and you were playing with, the the servers were not limited to regions, so it's like you would play with Japanese players and they had like these auto-translate tools and stuff like that. And eventually it's like, initially I was there by accident, but then I was there on purpose because the Japanese players would be like, sometimes better than the American players yeah. or I guess the Western players at like doing certain things. So I'd be like, all right, I want a Japanese party for this. Cause it's like, we're going to actually get stuff done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and probably much like, more polite as well. I imagine. Well, I'm hard to tell when you're, all you're doing is using the auto translate tools. Cause it's like basically gives you a few phrases that can be auto translated. But other than that, you're on your own. Okay. Uh, communication wise. But it was, uh, I played that so much for like the first half of that summer and it took eventually I realized like I'm not enjoying this I'm not getting anything out of it anymore um and it it was interesting because I actually played uh I played a white mage so I was a healer and I should have been and it's like because of that I could always 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 get a party if I wanted yeah everyone wanted a healer uh and it was also a game where even if you weren't like a like a healing class it was effectively impossible to solo monsters past a certain level so you needed a party um but if you were a healer it was especially impossible to solo monsters (laughs) you didn't really have any kind of offensive capabilities on your side so it was like i could get a group whenever i wanted and i always and And i needed needed one yeah anything in the game uh but i realized that it's like despite that i didn't really have like a social circle in that game it was like kind of like this weird lonely experience of like you are like socially the most desired person to like work with but then you don't have like a crew of people who you're playing with regularly right yeah so it's like i've got that going on uh so i realized it's like all i'm doing is playing with strangers helping them get what they want and then never hearing from them again and I'm like not really enjoying this anymore because it feels like it's just this big slog in terms of like gaining levels now. And also I had this like realization that like everything else I wanted to like do kind of in it's like when you're a teen, you want to like pursue all these different like creative things, especially during the summer. I realized like, oh, wait, I'm not doing any of that, am I? I'm spending like 24 seven with this game. And it was definitely it was not it, it was bizarre because it was like not a slow wean off of it it was just one day i was like i'm done that moment of clarity yeah it's just like it was i went from 24 almost 24 7 playing this game to i am never ever playing it again um very important Uh, question uh did you play final fantasy 12 uh aka the best final fantasy I got it and was excited to play it, but didn't get around to actually playing it. Oh, it's, the, it's the best. Uh, this is a running theme on the show, is that I always like to bring up Final Fantasy XII. Um, I mean, I was definitely excited about it. It was it was uh, like the same dev team that had done Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, yep. which I loved. As a, as a kid who played Game Boy games like religiously, like Tactics Advance was like one of my favorite games for like a very long period of time because it was very solid. Uh, 
I had a very yeah, similar summer to your person. your Final Fantasy XI summer with Final Fantasy Tactics, where I, I essentially lost most of a most of a July. Yep. Well, at least with those games, you can reach a, a stopping point. You yes, can like kind you of can, say, I, I've done everything, the game's over. It's like another game that consumed my life was Persona 4 when I played that. Yeah. But that that game itself, like, it runs on a timer. Like, you you have a certain amount of time to complete all the tasks in the game. Uh, I mean, it's not a um, it's not a temporal timer. It's not actually counting down the clock, but it is, like, based on how many hours. Oh, you've dropped off. Can you hear me? Hmm. Well, the call is still active, so I'm assuming you can, but I, I cannot hear you, I'm afraid. Oh, okay, I can second. hear you now. I can hear you now. Okay. That was weird. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I was able to hear you the whole time. Oh, okay. So, sorry, yeah, Persona 4. Yeah, so that was like... That game consumed my life for when I was playing it. Uh, and oddly enough, that was that was pretty recent, actually. Uh, that was probably like a year and a half ago. Um, it's a great game. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, it definitely it has an end point. It has an ending no matter what. It's like, if you are playing the game, you are marching towards the ending. Um, well, so. speaking of things ending then, if you, if you, are, if you are prone to, to such outbursts, what is your worst rage quit? Uh, my worst rage quit. I tend to not rage quit anything. Uh, I will, I will kind of like uh, like soft quit or be like kind of like bored quit if that makes sense. It's like if I reach a point in a game where I'm stuck or if it feels like I'm just not having fun with the game anymore, I'll stop playing. But that doesn't feel like a rage quit to me. Yeah. Um, I feel like having an earthquake when you're trying to get the highest currency packs gone. <laughs> Could could incite well, a small amount of rage. Yeah, maybe, but I did uh, just pop it back on again, so it didn't quit. Um, <laughs> and I suppose you're a bit worried uh, about the earthquake. Yeah. Oh, no, it was a pretty mild earthquake. It was one of those where it was like, if you'd never been in an earthquake before, you'd actually not know exactly what had happened. Right, um, okay, okay. But it was... Uh, in terms of rage, rage, like... the. Very few games have like definitely inspired me to be so frustrated that I actually get angry. Um, the only instance I can think of of like definitely being angry at being frustrated about a video game was in there was one part of Super Mario Sunshine that I found incredibly difficult to complete. And it sort of fed into itself because it's like one of these segments where they take away your little water backpack, so you've got to do like a 3D Mario level that they've made really hard. Uh, oh, with like the abstract yeah. kind of floating shapes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah, one yeah. of those. And there was a part very early in it where you just, you get a life. There's just always a one-up mushroom there. So there's no way to run out of lives on this thing. But I kept dying, and I was just so frustrated. And I was like so angry. And I... uh was very close to like doing something violent to the controller but then i think i was like no this is this is bad i shouldn't do that so instead i turned the game off and went somewhere else that's good that's very very reasonable um can you think of uh or are there any games that in particular that have really made you laugh really made me laugh um that's interesting because i feel like that 
games actually do uh, they do humor very well, but in a very strange, different way than like traditional like comedy that's intended to make you laugh. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are like there are of course like games that uh, have writing that has made me laugh. Like I think um, any game by the Catamites. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. Who's who are the Catamites? The Catamites is, uh, I believe he lives, or I believe he was, he's very mysterious. Uh, nobody really knows much about him, and there are very few interviews with him, but he's made games like Goblet Grotto and Murder Dog 4, The Trial of Murder Dog. Um, <laughs> so that one's amazing. That game will make you laugh. It's very, very good. Uh, and uh, he's... Also well-known for a game that I never got a chance to play because it was Windows only when everyone was talking about it, called Space Funeral, which features probably, like, it, it was, like, making fun of, at the time, the debates about, like, what the definition of video game was, or okay. definition of game. And he features this great segment of text in the game where someone says something like, uh, like, a game is uh, the combination of these four parts like one skeleton two <laughs> red key three score thing and four magic door if you see something that looks like a video game but isn't you should notify the police like, <laughs> so I, I i love his games in terms of like just sort of the writing humor um i think that also around 2007, around that era, there was this game, Barkley Shut Up and Jam Gaiden. Yes, yes, yes. It was amazing. Yep. So that, that one made me laugh, like, probably more in premise than in actual writing. I mean, I remember at the time playing that game and thinking a part of it was, like, pretty juvenile. And I was pretty juvenile when I was playing it. So, like, if I play it again now, I <laughs> might think it even, even more so than before. Um that's interesting, that though, because definitely. you went on to work on uh, Multiball, which is, like, whenever I talk to... Uh, this has come up a lot on the show recently. I think since I, I spoke to, to Bennett about Multiball, about how there's there's such... I feel like there's such potential in games as as a remix. Um, yep. Like, and not just an iteration, but, like, a, a literal remix. But And the only two examples I can that ever kind of immediately spring to mind are, are Multiball and uh, Barkley's Shut Up and Jam Guidance. Yeah, they're brilliant. Barkley Shut Up and Jam Gaiden is just like this incredible. It's just beautiful. It's just like in terms of just how much of like this culture is meshed together. Because it's like, on one hand, it's definitely making fun of JRPGs and satirizing them. And it's like every time you talk to a save point in that game, I think it takes actual forum text from like pedantic JRPG fans or something and uses <laughs> that as like the dialogue for the save point. Um, but it's also just like got this like incredible like story to it, which is within the canon of the movie Space Jam for some yep. reason, because they decided that they would do that. It's just so yeah, that game was pretty funny. Um, I also like in terms of like the writing and the humor. I th I found Undertale extremely charming yes. uh, when I played that last year. Um, but there was actually, I, I just want to bring this up because I think this is something that maybe people don't appreciate enough is like this kind of like a mechanical joke in a game. And there's like uh, this idea of like a joke the designer has played on the player by uh, 
just sort of messing with their expectations. And like Bennett's games have obvious examples of that in them. Like when in the end of GURP, when the bird like steals the present that you want yes. or stuff like that. Um, and uh, Stephen Lavelle's games tend to have stuff like that. Like for instance, Stephen's sausage roll has a lot of puzzles in it where it seems like, oh, it's very obvious what I do. The puzzle is just kind of like this, but then it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, that's not how it works at all. He knew exactly, I, he knew I was going to try that and okay, is now okay. making fun of me for having done that and failed. Um, but one of my favorite examples that I saw recently was I was playing uh, Ocarina of Time Master Quest. Okay. I don't know if you ever... Is that like they, the, the, the extra dungeons and things? Yeah, basically they, at one point, they just, they took Ocarina of Time, and I think they, at least in the version that I played, which was originally released in the US uh, as a GameCube, like, pre-order for Wind Waker or something. Yes, 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 no, kept, I know the exact game, I know the exact game. Yeah, they kept the overworld the same, but they made all the dungeons, uh, they just rearranged them completely. So it's like, they were remixed, but they were remixed in, like, really bizarre ways, such that you would have to, like, for instance, they would borderline be relying on glitches uh to have you progress through the dungeon so like for instance they had this uh these firewalls that would like pop up say in like the fire temple yeah that were there that were intended to be you can't go through this area or you can't go past this uh but they never coded in the fact that you can't just hookshot through them and then in the master master quest version of the dungeon uh hookshotting through those firewalls is required like, you have to know that you have to do that or that you're capable of doing that in the first place. But my favorite moment from that game that I was playing recently, and that game has some really good moments where they're really screwing with the player, but it's like you go into the fire temple and there's, like, a single locked door, like, and then there's another room off to the side that uh, has a chest in it that spawns after you kill all the enemies. So it's like you basically, you're thinking traditional Zelda kind of like uh, style of puzzle where it's like, oh, locked door, only other place I can go with a chest probably has the key, right? Yeah, of course. That's sort of like your assumption. And so what happens is that you go into the room where the chest is, and I think it's like uh, to get the chest to spawn, you have to kill all the enemies. But it's like at some point you run into the into the middle of the room and they just drop a like-like on you, which is this enemy that eats your equipment. It just gets, fundamentally, just drops straight on you out of nowhere. Okay. And it eats your shield. And you're like, great. Uh, now I'm going to have to go back to town and buy a new shield, probably. Right? And you kill the, you kill all the enemies and the chest spawns, and you're like, alright, well, here's the key. I'm going to have to go back in town and get a new shield or something. And you open the chest and of course, it's a shield. <laughs> and it's like, there's nothing else in that room. The only purpose of that room was, you thought this was going to be a very traditional puzzle, but oh, nope. <laughs> Instead, we're messing with you. We put you through a little emotional roller coaster where we ate your shield and then gave you a new one. And guess what? No key here. You're going to have to go look for it elsewhere. Like That's amazing. So I actually, I, I couldn't stop giggling when that happened, actually, in that game. I was just like, this is incredible. Oh, man. And they would have never gotten away with doing something like that in the original version of the game. <laughs> uh, no, that that's amazing. And weirdly enough, that is like one of the other games that, that comes up a lot when I 
talk about like games that are funny uh, is is Paul obviously, but it was never just the the script because Paul has sections with exactly that sensation where you, you're doing things and you're like surely that can't be how I solve this puzzle because that'd be ridiculous and then it is and that that feeling is so brilliant and it does make you laugh like it's, yeah. it's ridiculous that they put these constraints on me but I also yep. feel amazing now I figured it out yep oh so good um so so when did you kind of because I mean you, you are still quite young now so I imagine like did you go off after university and think right I'm an indie dev now like what was your process after that uh, actually, it was while I was in university that I started thinking I'm an indie dev or that I want to be an indie dev yeah. or that kind of thing. So I started actually working on uh, games basically on my own while I was still an undergrad. Um, I mean, I, I had done this before when I was like in high school, especially as a I guess maybe I never mentioned this before. But when I was a camp counselor, there was a computer camp. So oh, amazing. We, we were teaching kids how to make games for the most part. So I made a lot of games during that period. And then. Uh, as an undergrad, I started to think like more seriously, I would like to make games, um, and started working on them as side projects for the most part. And yeah, I guess it was, uh, once I finished my undergrad, I was sort of in this place where I'm like, ideally I would like to continue making games, uh, but sort of be subsisting while I do it. Right. Um, yeah. And I'd had an experience where it's like I'd worked for Microsoft as an intern for a summer and like going into that right away, they were like, I think I had to sign something that basically said like anything you work on while you're at the company belongs to us. Like, and that was definitely something I was very not into. So I was kind of like, while all my other friends were then getting jobs to go work for big kind of like tech firms and stuff like that, I was super skeptical. I was like, uh, I'm not sure they'll let me work on my own stuff. Um, so I basically spent some time trying to find a way to stall that, uh, particular, the uh, I guess route. Yeah. And I, so the first thing I did was I stayed for a fifth year and got a master's degree in computer science because I had that option. Um, and that's like, that was nice cause, uh, didn't have to pay any tuition. Um, and I got a stipend for like, uh, being a TA stuff like that. So I was able to work on games in my free time while I was a grad student, uh, there. Amazing. And so, yeah, that was like, that was one year. Uh, but then after that I was basically when I decided to go to NYU, um, because I was like, I, I still want to make games, but I feel like I don't really have the necessary skills or experience or time at this point. So it's like continuing school or education was like an opportunity to, I guess, continue, like, uh, give myself more time to like yeah. actually continue working on this stuff before the harsh reality of the real world sets in and you have to go find a job and make money and you're not allowed to make games anymore. Like, um, so yeah, that was the next thing. So then it's like, after I got my first master's degree, uh, I went off to go get a second one, uh, this time specifically about games. And I guess like after that would have been like, maybe around a, year and a half ago was when I basically finished that. And so for the past year and a half, I've been doing 
part-time work teaching while I uh, do part-time work making games. That's a good deal. I mean, I'm 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 sure that the the kind of the the, the teaching part of it will, you know enable you to learn just as much as as the kids in some ways if you know what i mean like that, yeah. that's often the best way of you know learning something yourself is to try and teach somebody else definitely i definitely agree with that and that's partly why i'm uh teaching this procedural generation class next semester is i'm like well actually there's a lot of stuff here i would like to know so let's go ahead and teach it so that like <laughs> i can gain like a really good understanding of it um, okay so so now you're sort of you know you're I, I suppose you must be in in a, in a kind of a groove now because, like you know, you have the kind of the timetable of, of academia essentially, and you you know you've you've been making a whole bunch of games. Do you still find time to to play a lot of games? Are you still as excited about games as as you were when you were younger? Um. Well, that's a good question. It's uh, because actually, like something I found recently is that given that most of my uh, work time is spent involving games in some way, yeah. it's like actually pretty difficult to like I don't know dedicate free time to games, especially if you feel like once you get into a very designer's mindset about games, it can be difficult to play them sometimes because it's like when you see stuff, you start looking at them very kind of like oh, I kind of like understand how this system works and it's like this game is 12 hours, but I'm going to play for an hour and I, okay, I get it. And now I'm done with of this course, or something. Yeah. Or, like, or like you play a game that's very much like similar to a game that you played before and you're like, well, I can see where this is going and I don't really want to invest all the time in that. So I'm not particularly invested in that anymore. And it's like, it, it starts being this thing where sometimes a game that will like grab me now is a game that's basically a the a game I've played before. So like Pokemon is an example of that. Like the new Pokemon I'm like getting very invested in, but at the same time like after spending the past several months like releasing several games, um I definitely needed something like slightly mindless or at least something familiar yeah. in like a comforting way to like kind of deal with that. But other times it's like trying to find something new or unexpected can be hard. And that's like sometimes what you're looking for. Um, but that's probably, I mean, you're probably kind of uh, spoiled to a certain extent because you're going to be getting fresh and new things all the time that you know people are making <clears throat> just yeah, as a process of the university and teaching and things. Yeah, that's definitely true to a certain extent. Um, yeah, it's like, have there been games that kind of students have made that have made you be like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like this, this is completely unexpected. I'm trying to think about that. Let me, let me think about some of my favorite games made by students. Um, so the games that my, my students directly, the ones who I'm currently teaching, it's they're in the very, very intro programming course. Um, so for the most part, they're making their first ever digital games. Yeah. Uh, which means most of the time they're kind of like working very heavily within the constraints of what they know how to do, which means that they don't necessarily explore that to a huge degree. Um, it's like the most, the interesting things that come out of that class is like when a student says like, Ooh, I knew how to do like this kind of thing. So I made like this interesting new puzzle game that like, I don't think anyone has done before. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. It's like, but at the same time, it's kind of like, I've seen plenty of like, clever little puzzle games right yeah. um 
So let me think about like in terms of games that are like uh hmm. We can skip ahead if yeah. I put you on the spot. Yeah, no, it, it's hard because it's like uh there are lots of games that are like I guess in terms of like the New York culture of what was popular for development, at least while I was a student, is a lot of local multiplayer games. So there's like tons of local multiplayer games that are really interesting uh, that exist around the New York game scene. Um, so I definitely see a lot of that. But those are definitely a little bit tough in terms of like getting out into the world and getting a lot of like recognition and attention yeah. because it's like local multiplayer is still like a pretty tough sell. For the most part, it is um, actually doing like purely from my own sort of perspective. I feel like that's becoming much bigger. Like in the past five years, even just the past two years, there's been what seems to me like a proliferation of, of game events, like live events, like like people are putting on, you know, like local multiplayer days. There's a, a show in Glasgow called Glass Games. They've, they've just done their tenth outing, and I did like I did a whole episode about it. And it is purely just local multiplayer, and people come for the day and just do that. And you know, there's a mixture of kind of you know classic local multiplayer stuff like Mario Kart and whatever, but then also loads of indie stuff as well that they've got especially for the event. Yep. So I do see that yep. growing. Yeah, more. there are lots of events around here that have uh, interesting local multiplayer games as like a big, a big heavy component of them. Um, but do you still play? I mean, do you still play games for fun? Like, are you still excited? Like for a new release, for instance, you're like, oh, I'm really looking forward to this game. Like, that happens occasionally. Um, it's not always like uh, it, it's. It is definitely like rarer than when I was younger. Yeah, uh, that I get really excited about a new release. Um, like actually, funnily, ironically enough, a new release that I was really excited about recently was in fact not a new release but a port. Uh, so. Back at the very beginning of this year, I got really into Darkest Dungeon. I liked that game a lot. Um, okay. Or I, there were things about that game that I liked a lot. I don't think it's like 100% perfect, and there are definitely aspects of it that I'm not super into. One of which is definitely the style. I'm not a huge Lovecraft fan, and I'm not a huge, in general, like Grimdark fan. As you might guess from... Absolutely, yeah. From Your Deglish, cyberpunk games. I'm definitely a little bit more into that. But I think it's solved some very prevalent problems in uh, game design that I find really interesting. So I played a lot of that uh, at the beginning of the year. And what I was very excited about recently was they were going to port it to Vita. And I was like, yes, I would love to play that game on a handheld because that's where I want to play it, like on the couch like uh, or in bed yeah. or that kind of thing. Uh, so I actually got really excited for that release. Um, so your your love of handhelds has clearly carried through your whole life. Definitely. Yep. I love handhelds a lot. I love the Vita is like the poor Vita is such a brilliant, amazing console that it, unfortunately, I mean, I know what its issue is, which is that I love it a lot and I play it a lot, but every single game I play on it is available on another console originally. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like got this exclusivity problem to it um but otherwise it's like it's great it's, it's know, a beautiful nice thing but it's a shame yeah it's unsupported yeah. um i feel like we've covered all sorts of stuff uh, ap is there anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention um 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think that's like probably most of it or most of like, well, I don't know. I was mostly just reacting to all of the different questions. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything. Or if there's anything that, you know, you wanted to mention or a specific game that kind of meant a lot to you that you hadn't mentioned so far that you wanted to talk about. I mean, I guess there's just one thing that I just kind of almost off topic, but made me think of immediately was when you were mentioning about like, not always being super invested in the stories of games or in the writing in games or that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, I had this realization recently because I, I replayed Ocarina of Time, uh, which is a game that I go back to a lot. It's often a game I go back to in terms of like, uh, sort of a turn your mind off and like just sort of, it's, it's it's a welcome home game in a certain way. Yeah, it's like a it's like, like a warm blanket. Like I'm so familiar with that world. I it's like I I probably remember the layout of Hyrule in that game better than I remember the layout of my childhood home, which has since been sold. Like yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and it's like the thing I was thinking about while replaying it was like oh, yes, like, the actual overarching story of this game is, like, from, like, a high-level perspective, it's not that interesting, right? Or it doesn't seem that interesting. It's, like, you've got, like, this evil guy trying to steal this ultimate power, and, like, you know, now you have to go to all the different parts of the world and, it's like, fix fix the temple and then gain the power of the sage and then go off and fight him and he's going to kidnap the princess and you know that sort of stuff um, yeah i don't even think i could uh, i could sufficiently lay out the story of ocarina of time in yeah my head. So you time travel at one point yeah um but that's the thing i realized recently is that actually like the there are moments in that game that are really interesting and well written but they're kind of like incidental and not part of the main plot yeah. or they're like and they all kind of like tie into this theme that sort of permeates through it. So it's like you've got this plot of like Link is a child and he draws the sword from the stone, but he's too young to wield it. So for some reason, the like the whole world decides that he's going to go be cryogenically like put in stasis for seven years until he's old enough to like wield the sword. Right. And so now he's in the future and he's an adult. Um, it's got that. Like, that's, like, the major shift, right, in yeah. the game. And then the rest of the game is very much about, like, all these people you met and interacted with as a kid and, like, your relationship to them now that you're an adult. And in a way, there's, like, there are just some, like, really kind of bittersweet, poignant moments about, like, how this is sort of, like, fundamentally a game about, like, a lost childhood and, like, the loneliness of growing up, almost. And it's, like how all of like Link's greatest friends and allies when he was a kid, it's like implied that now that he's an adult, like everyone has to like assume this responsibility uh, yeah. as like this, as a sage or whatever. And they can't be with him anymore. Like they can't be together anymore. And so like every time you learn one of the songs that warps you to one of the temples, like Sheik, who is later revealed to be Princess Zelda, does like tells you a like does this little kind of like poem or like kind of uh, like monologue about like something changing through the flow of time or something that's like uh, 
kind of like a, a fundamental aspect of growing up. So it's like when you get to the forest temple or whatever, it's about how it's like your childhood friend and how like people drift apart and become unrecognizable as they get older. Yeah. So it's like there's that entire sequence leading up to that where it's like you go back to the village you lived in as a kid. And because none of the kids there are like they're all like forest spirits or whatever, none of them have grown up and you're the only one who's grown up and none of them recognize you. And it's like one of these like kind of sad moments. And it's like now you're searching for like the one person who would recognize you. And it's like once you find her, she's now got to like live in the sacred realm and can't talk to you anymore. And it's like, it's got a lot of that. I'm never going to be able to play that game in the same way again. Yeah, it's got a lot of that stuff. It's like you go back to like the Gorons and stuff and it's like you were like, you became best friends with the chieftain after you like saved his, uh, his people when you were a kid and he like calls you brother and everything and you go back and it's like everything is messed up again and he's trying to like save his people. And the one Goron you find still in the village is his kid who was not around when you were a kid, who's been named after you. And it's like almost like this, this feeling of like, Oh yeah, this is someone who was like close enough to you that he considered you family. And it's like you disappeared for like a really long time and now you're back in their hour of need kind of. And it's like, all he wants to do is like, you know, appreciate you as like his sworn brother and stuff and work together with you. But then, so there's like that, the fire temple, he's like, I'm going to go slay the dragon. You should go save my people. But as it turns out, he can't slay the dragon because he's the sage of the te- of the temple. So you have to go sl- uh, slay the dragon. And he's just kind of like, well, now I can't be there for my people, but maybe you can be instead or that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, man, it's just like a lot of stuff. It's similar like in the water temple. It's like uh, the the Zora princess like wanted to marry you. And then at the end of it, she's like, well, looks like that's never going to happen. Uh, it's like. yeah it's like and so much of it is like like we the these characters have this like when you're a kid it's like they've got these hopes and dreams and what they want for the future and then when you're an adult they're like well this is what it means to be an adult it means i can't get what i want because we need we have something more important to do and it like it becomes super lonely um and it's like the the game ends in that way too, where it's like after in your moment of triumph, you've like defeated Ganon, you saved Hyrule. Like Princess Zelda is like talking to you, and she's like, "All right, good job, you saved Hyrule. Thank you so much. By the way, you can't stay here. This is not your place. You need to go back to your own time." So it's like while the rest of Hyrule is like celebrating, like the new world, how it's like the evil king has been defeated, you have to go back to the place and time where nobody remembers who you are. And, that, is, uh, that is a heartbreaking and, reading of the Ocarina of Time. And then, uh, and then at that exact moment, when you get there, when you go back there to like this time when none of this has happened and like everything that you did in terms of taking responsibility has kind of been like erased, your one partner throughout this entire adventure, the fairy, leaves you without saying anything. I think that's uh, an important place to end our discussion, yeah. AP. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just got really invested in that. <laughs> no, that's, that is genuinely amazing. I'd never, 
I don't know. Like, I, that's such a. I don't, it's so good and so true. And why have why haven't I heard that before? Why didn't it occur to me? Maybe because I haven't played it in a few years. Maybe if I went back and played it, I would be like, "Oh, this is really quite sad." Because part of it is it's all like just hinted at at the sidelines. It's yeah, like the game's yeah. never like explicitly saying like this is a game about growing up. This is about becoming an adult, and this is about why being an adult involves like sacrifice and loneliness. Instead, it's like, well, there's an evil king, and you got to go defeat him because but you're maybe the hero. That, like maybe that one. is is noted though, like even subconsciously, because you know, Ocarina of Time is is almost always like you know best game ever ocarina of time it's always in contention at least and you know yeah. a lot of people say oh well it's the first 3d zelda so it's amazing but i i'd argue that maybe there is something more to it that 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 kind of theme that you just sort of uh, beautifully uh, eloquently explained like that that does have some resonance whether you whether you're conscious of it or not yeah yeah and it's like almost all of it is outside of the main yeah exactly it's like all just in stuff that you pick up in hints and small along the way and like it's they can't be accidental you know the amount of effort that goes into making a game you're not gonna that's not just gonna be by chance that is that's very clearly yep. a, a design idea i think they were definitely thinking along the along that theme yeah as they were playing it's something similar we were doing in be glitched as well as i very much i was like this is a game about insecurity i want every like person you fight or like hacker you fight to be insecure in some way and yeah. like have that expressed through their character and that kind of thing oh that's wonderful um i i thoroughly enjoyed that ap are you are you good with that were you happy yeah thank you yeah, it was fun awesome okay cool well have a good uh, a good rest of your day i'll uh, i'll speak to you soon thank you.